Thank you very much, Stuart. I'm struck by how intimate this lecture theatre is. I, I've never stood at the front of this lecture theatre. I've sat in it and been lectured at many times. And it always felt a much bigger place. <laughs> if you check the programme, you'll see that my subject is war poetry. When Wilfred Owen drafted a preface to a projected volume of his poems about the war, he was about to return to active service in the summer of 1918, he stated, my subject is war. But to assert that, he first had to banish poetry, because poetry wasn't worthy, and because it was always about something other than war. This book is not about heroes, he wrote. English poet, we're right at the top of this image of, of, of what's usually referred to as the draft preface by Owen. English poetry is not yet fit to speak of them, nor is it about deeds or lands, nor anything about glory, honour, might, majesty, dominion, or power, except war. Above all, I am not concerned with poetry. My subject is war poetry. <laughs> Wilfred Owen's subject is war. And my talk is about the fate of the disjunction between war and poetry that Owen insists on here, about what it might mean that war and poetry are now so familiarly conjoined in the concepts of war poetry and the war poet. Because it was a relationship that was deeply problematic for Owen as a poet, as a patient in Craig Lockhart Hospital in Edinburgh, and as a serviceman. But it appears today to be deeply unproblematic Heroes, well, heroes have made a comeback. 100 poems from the new generation of war poets. Or to take a rather different example. And I'll, I'll come back to this in a second. It's as if war poetry now comes between us and war. And we might ask what kind of knowledge of war or what kind of war experience is it that is constituted by reading poetry that tells us the truth about war. Now, I've just done a screenshot from Balliol College's alumni website where it identifies Patrick Shaw Stewart, um, a brilliant classic student, as a war poet. That's not an occupation that I think Patrick... Shaw Stewart would have recognised. And it's significant that, as the website notes, the attribution, war poet, rests, I quote, on a single poem which was unknown in his lifetime. It's a striking poem, and a genuine one, an act of imaginative transformation which demonstrates what, within a few years, the poet and critic T.S. Eliot would call the historical sense which compels a man to write not merely with his own generation in his bones, but with a feeling that the whole of the literature of Europe, from Homer 
has a simultaneous existence and composes a simultaneous order. I saw a man this morning who did not wish to die. I ask and cannot answer if otherwise wish I. Fair broke the day this morning against the Dardanelles. The breeze blew soft. The morn's cheeks were cold as cold seashells. But other shells are waiting across the Aegean Sea, shrapnel and high explosive, shells and hells for me. O oh, hell of ships and cities, hell of men like me, fatal second Helen, why must I follow thee? Achilles came to Troyland, and I to Chersonese. He turned from wrath to battle, and I from three days' peace. Was it so hard, Achilles, so very hard to die? Thou knewest, and I know not, so much the happier I. I will go back this morning from Imbros over the sea. Stand in the trench, Achilles, flame-capped, and shout for me. This poem breaks Owen's self-imposed embargoes by making literal and figurative parallels between the Gallipoli campaign and the legends of the Trojan War. And those parallels are grounded in the geographical co-location of those conflicts in modern Turkey. The invocation of Achilles at one stroke reinstates heroes, deeds, lands, glory, honour, might, majesty, dominion, power. The poem's devices, notably the way the historical parallelism is reprised phonetically in the punning on shell, hell and Helen, draw our attention to the author's craft as a poet. But I'm going to presume that what strikes a 21st century audience is the way the poem represents death in battle as a possible wish. I ask and cannot answer if otherwise wish I. And how ignorance about how hard it is to die is a source of gladness on the eve of battle. Make a note to yourself do you regard this as a war poem? Do you think Patrick Shaw Stewart is a war poet? In the century since he wrote, the terms war poetry and war poet have acquired a cultural authority which Wilfred Owen could only imagine negatively. The centuries will burn rich loads with which we groaned, whose warmth shall lull their dreaming lids while songs are crooned. But they will not dream of us poor lads left in the ground. In a sketch for a table of contents, um, you can see the poem I've just quoted from Minus, 
is right is the, is the first poem in this in this um, provisional uh, table of contents for a, for a projected volume of Owen's poems. The poet annotated or, or explained the motives of his poems, and minors from which I've just quoted one of four poems he published in his lifetime. Um, not a poem which is directly about the war. Minus, he, he, he noted, was about how the future will forget the dead in war. But there's an important sense in which the centuries were not forgetful. And this is what I want to talk about. The value that has accrued to the discourse which we recognise as war poetry. And I suppose we, 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 we will also be thinking about the power of that category of war poetry to configure or reconfigure our responses to writing about war, the retroactive power of that category to organise how we, how we respond to what people wrote a hundred or more years ago. We will also consider the subjects of this discourse, those who enunciated the war poets, an exclusive cohort of men, I'm going to uh, provocatively claim. It's not difficult to think of examples of poetry about war by women. And in fact, an anthology from 1917, G.H. Clarke's A Treasury of War Poetry, does just that with its 20th and last section, which is called Women in the War, and consists of poems by women. But is it possible to identify an example of a woman war poet? The question of who can be a war poet, in particular the value placed on first-hand military experience, may be a clue to the conundrum of how a discourse which is largely taken to be anti-war can coexist with bellicist or even militarist strains in our culture. Edmund Blunden, writing an introduction for a 1930 anthology of First World War poetry, wrote, it was one of the romantic things about Thomas Campbell, a, a poet who, who wrote about the Napoleonic Wars. It was one of the romantic things about Thomas Campbell that he had seen as well as sung the Battle of Hohenlinden. George Orwell, explaining the English genius, as he called it, in the critical year of 1940, at the beginning of the Second World War, wrote of a popular hatred of war and militarism, which defined the English. One piece of evidence for this contradictory state of affairs, contradictory because it flatly denied the existence of the British Empire, was that, as Orwell put it, English literature is full of battle poems, but the ones that have won for themselves a kind of popularity are always a, t a tale of disasters and retreats. War poetry, as opposed to battle poems, can be even more radically anti-triumphalist, presenting war itself as a disaster. But George Orwell also acknowledged that he'd grown up, I quote, in an atmosphere tinged with militarism. 
his memoir and analysis of the Spanish Civil War, a book called Homage to Catalonia, like some poems of 1914-18, shares with the culture as a whole a capacity Orwell would later call doublethink in 1984. That's the capacity to hold two contradictory ideas in your mind at the same time. That war is both the destruction of and the source of personal and political value. That military violence, um, to um, play around with a phrase of Conrad's from Heart of Darkness, is a fascination as well as an abomination. Now, having noted that war poetry constitutes a form of remembrance, I don't want to suggest that Owen's mission to warn the future about war was fulfilled, that war poetry has been politically and morally efficacious. It goes without saying that it has not. And hence the social life of war poetry, it's lionised, but it's ultimately discounted or ignored, is a kind of repetition of the waste of human life which war poetry typically draws to our attention. Let me give you one example of this paradox. Um, This example is taken from a memoir of the Vietnam War, published in 1977, a couple of years after the fall of Saigon. I had read all the serious books to come out of the world wars and Wilfred Owen's poetry about the Western Front. And yet I'd learned nothing. All the poet can do today is warn, Owen wrote. Philip Caputo there is quoting from that draft preface, the first image, um, the first text I showed you. So I guess every generation is doomed to fight its war, to endure the same old experiences, suffer the loss of the same old illusions, and learn the same old lessons on its own. Succeeding generations' repetition of illusions about war is a fate or a doom which counteracts the liberalising, emancipatory aims of education. Alternatively, I suppose, it could be argued that this fate represents another, less formal kind of learning, the imitation and performance of a militant masculinity. What Philip Caputo, the author of this memoir, has really learned thus contradicts an orthodox reading of the literary culture of the First World War, namely that it marked a break with traditional heroic rhetoric and a demystification of ideologies of military violence which somehow camouflaged the reality of war. English poetry from the years of the Spanish Civil War provides us with plenty of evidence of the survival of what Robert Graves would call a poetry of self-dedication, which is closer to the attitudes expressed in Rupert Brooke's The Soldier than to the angry and satirical verse published by Siegfried Sassoon, which, in other words, is this Spanish Civil War poetry is pro-war rather than anti-war. I want to do some more 
uh, with this idea of looking back at um, the poetry of the First World War um, from the perspective offered um, by subsequent conflicts, and in particular by the power of the category of the war poet to suggest to people that these subsequent conflicts should inevitably, necessarily issue in a war poetry of their own. So we will will find some evidence of the way the idea of war poetry took form and shaped expectations across uh, the 20th uh, century. I've been asked to explain as a war poet of the last war why so little poetry has so far been produced by this one. That's Robert Graves in 1942. Yes, my publishers fastened the war poet label on me in 1916 when Over the Brazier, my first book of verse, appeared. But when 20 years later I published my collected poems... I found that I could not conscientiously reprint any of my war poems. They were too obviously written in the war poetry boom. Let me gloss that. The war poetry boom is Robert Graves' term for the efflorescence of a poetry of self-dedication during the First World War, (coughs) which he saw in a rather cynical way as being written in order to support what was essentially a voluntary war effort, or at least it was until um, the introduction of conscription in 1916. And anybody who's familiar with Graves' war poetry might well want to argue the extent to which all of his war poems reflect um, that, as it were, kind of writing about the Great War. Before explaining why no war poets have appeared after two years of World War II, he goes on, I must point out that the war poet and war poetry are terms first used in World War I and perhaps peculiar to it. Now, there's no surprise there. That's something we all know. Yet it's something we also don't know well enough or it's something we forget when we... um, if we ever do, reflect on um, the, the conceptual prisms through which we read uh, and reread the poetry of the First World War. Robert Graves' argument in 1942 that war poetry hadn't got a future was twofold. Conscription, which as I said was introduced in 1916, but this time had been introduced in peacetime in 1939. That's his first argument. And the second argument is, um, is based in the fact of, of, of the blitz. So the boom in self-dedicate, self-dedicatory war poetry after 1914 was, as I said, <coughs> essentially a fillip to recruitment. The poetry of what Graves calls volunteer pride had no place in the regime of manpower direction um, of the 19, early 1940s. And bombed civilians, according to Robert Graves, were having a worse time of it than soldiers who were cooped up in camps awaiting some future second front. There was as yet no warrant 
for the poetry of the angry veteran, as Graves characterises, the protest poetry of the First World War. As the posthumous gathering of Graves' own poems about war, that's the title of a volume which, as it were, reinstated those poems he excluded from his collected poems, which appeared in 1988, three years after his death. Um, as, that, as that volume attests, Graves' argument, um, in, in, in its broadest terms, was wrong. War poetry did have a future. A year later than, than Graves' statement, uh, and in the United States, Peter de Vries, the editor of um, the magazine Poetry, answered a, a similar question to the one posed to Robert Graves. What are the war poets writing? And he did so in the pages of a US journal, College English. He noted an official assumption, as I quote, that poetry flows freely in time of war. And his essay um, sought to explain where that assumption came, for, came from. There is, first, the tenaciously glamorous conception of both war and the poet, merged in the irresistible image of the singer gone a soldiering. There is the arousal by war of emotions so intense that only art's most vibrant instrument would seem capable of giving them full expression. There is perhaps a desperate need to have a modern war, which at bottom we recognise for what it really is, a pure anthropoid horror, given a transformation in terms of those human ideals without which the very thought of the present carnage becomes insupportable. And there is the memory of particular poets in the last war. This is coolly even-handed. In fact, the balancing of glamour and horror is another reminder, a necessary one, I think, that the representation of war does not answer to the black and white ethical, or does not answer to black and white ethical or political prescriptions. We find the same suggestion in a discussion of war poetry from 1917. This is the introduction to George Herbert Clark's Treasury of War Poetry. Where it has tended to glorify war in itself, it is chiefly because war has released those qualities, so to speak, in stirring and spectacular ways. And where it has chosen to round upon war and to upbraid it, it is because war has slain ardent and lovable youths and brought misery and despair to women and old people. But the war poet has left the mere arguments to others. For himself, he has seen and felt. And there will be an echo of that uh, later in this lecture. Of all of the factors referred to by Peter de Vries, the last, the memory of particular poets in the last war, has proved the most potent. Keith Douglas, who was an exception to Robert Graves' observation about the relative safety of Second World War soldiers, he was serving 
in North Africa when he wrote, wrote the, the best known of his, of his Second World War poems. Douglas took a different view to Graves about why war poetry was impossible. Anything, he wrote, a poet on active service would be inspired to write would be tautological. It would literally be repeating the same words as those used by Great War predecessors. In Douglas's case, his obstructing muse was the poet Isaac Rosenberg. In the case of Alan Lewis, whose poetry of garrison boredom and safety Robert Graves had quoted in his arguments uh, in 1942. In the case of Lewis, it was Edward Thomas who was, as it were, the presiding um, First World War poet. C. Day Lewis, a poet of the, the 30s generation, who in a book called A Hope for Poetry, 1934, had called Owen and Sassoon true revolutionary poets, wrote a poem in the Second World War called Where Are the War Poets? And he did so to question that expectation identified by Peter de Vries, that expectation that a war just would issue in war poetry. In the case of Day Lewis's poem, the problem of tautology is not one of repetition and belatedness coming after poets who've already said everything there is to say about war. It's a problem of politics. The enemies of freedom in Day Lewis's poem, who are allied as well as Axis war leaders, borrow our language now and bid us speak up in freedom's cause. The implication here is that the writing of poetry to support a necessary war is a betrayal of the values to be defended. There's an inherent contradiction there. Cecil Day Lewis's contemporary poet and critic Stephen Spender thought that if the poets of today, and he's talking um, in 1941 on the radio about war poetry in this war, if the poets of today were to follow the examples of any poets of the last war, it would rather be, I'm interested in that rather, it would rather be that of the realists who described the horror of the Western Front, Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen. Yet here too, he goes on, circumstances are so altered that it is impossible to look to the last war as a precedent. For one thing, the environment of this war does not in the least resemble that of 1914-18. For another, paradoxically enough, the real need today is for a poetry which constructs an, an ideal, not one which describes horrors. The canon of war poetry, which was emerging from the myriad poems written about the Great War, um, K. 
Catherine Riley lists 2,000 authors of verse about the Great War in her 1978 bibliography. That, that canon of war poetry by the poets who we're going to be um, listening to lectures about and discussing over the next three days was already, in 1941, demonstrating its capacity to resist political and social rationalisations of war. So for Spender, the war poetry that poets would rather follow is the wrong kind of war poetry because it doesn't lend itself to constructing an ideal. Robert Graves, in an update to that 1942 essay that we've already um, looked at, similarly concluded that there was only one great war model for future war poetry, but that it was nevertheless the wrong model. By the time that the rest of the British army was at last engaged in grand-scale fighting, referring to the Normandy invasion the poets serving in it were too highly trained and conscientious as soldiers important word for graves isn't it conscientious and found the war too well staged and exciting to write defeatist war poems on the model of the 1917-18 sort but what other sort was there to write that's an interesting double bind even if they felt ambitious to be war poets, the tortuous modernistic fashions in which they'd been writing before their conscription were unsuited to the higher journalism which war poetry essentially is. Like Yeats, another poet critic who dissociated himself from the emerging canons of war poetry by claiming it wasn't poetry thereby making Wilfred Owen's private manifesto quite, quite literal. Graves, I think, nevertheless teaches us something that it's worth thinking about with this lofty dismissal. And that is that because war poetry, unlike, for instance, love poetry, has a public historical referent, it's been its fate to be reduced to information. The contradictions and complexities which poetry holds up to view get boiled down to shibboleth. Another trace of the memory of the poets of the Great War is the perennial argument amongst scholars of war poetry about the comparative neglect of poetry arising from later conflicts. If you like, this is an archival version of where are the war poets. Students of Second World War literature would dismiss Graves' refutation as absurd, and they'd set about demonstrating the literary merits of G.S. Fraser or Lynette Roberts or Geoffrey Matthews, scores of poets writing about war in wartime. But if we put academic amor propria aside for a minute, we could think about how this supposed imbalance reflects back on the concept of war poetry. 
There's a standard literary historical narrative uh, which holds that the Great War inaugurates a kind of poetry which is to be called war poetry by dint of its expression of anti-war attitudes. In the realm of military culture, war poetry is thus a modernist upheaval involving a revaluation of martial values and a linguistic revolution. But unlike literary modernism in general, war poetry has had a spectacular success with the common reader to the extent that its perspective on military affairs and military history. Orwell, in his essay Inside the Whale, calls it the passive negative angle. Those perspectives on military affairs and military history have progressively across the 20th century become associated with a common sense negation of the Great War as an absurd and vicious sacrifice. Not self-sacrifice, as in the case of Shaw, Stewart or Brooke, but sacrifice. Sacrifice of young men uh, by older men. This view of the war pains military historians. It will be interesting to observe over the next four years of commemoration how those commemorative practices negotiate the relationship between historical evidence on the one hand and literary evidence on the other between records of mass participation and a narrow literary canon. Though that said, um, narrow literary canon, it's striking that the conjunction of war and poetry in the concept of war poetry generally has the effect of dispelling anxieties that poetry is an elite or even an effete discourse. That's something we might want to talk about um, outside of this lecture. But if we confine ourselves to literary records, the category of war poet narrowly defined as the author of protest poetry, Robert Graves' angry or defeatist poet, is clearly distorting. When applied retrospectively to servicemen who wrote verse, war poet creates, or the category of, of the war poet and of war poetry, creates an expectation which, if examined, as it not always is, is as likely to be disappointed by ideological dissonance by failure to live up to those expectations of, of, of a discourse which is um, against war, as it is by facile writing. But I don't actually want to linger on the dangers of a kind of retrospective ideological cleansing of bellicist and patriotic verse to conform to later attitudes to war, which are associated, I'd argue, with um, the concepts of war poetry and the war poet. Elizabeth Van Diver's study of the presence of classical literature and classical educations in First World War poetry, it's the last um, reference in, in the reading list that Stuart was referring to earlier, contains a number of instructive examples of where it is mistaken to assume a poet's use of heroic motifs is necessarily ironic just because, because Paul Fussell's wonderful book, The Great War and Modern Memory, encouraged us, indeed taught us, 
to see irony as the fundamental relationship structuring war experience. What I, what, I, what I do want to do, though, is to close by considering how the category of war poetry and the war poet has shaped the future of war poetry, which Wilfred Owen had to deny in, in order to make its future, uh, that, make that future a matter of urgency. So let's turn to the contemporary scene. The poet Simon Armitage wrote in 2008 that literary poets are writing war poetry today. It's just a question of knowing where to look for it. That's um, the preface to his, his pamphlet, The Not Dead, of 2008, where he ventriloquizes veterans from, from recent um, British conflicts. Knowing where to look for it. The anniversary of 1914 is making looking for this poetry a lot easier. Um, but I want to ask what kind of poetry is this contemporary great war poetry? In 2009, the Mirror publicised commemorative verse about Harry Patch, who'd been the last surviving. British veteran of the Great War and it publicised it in a, in a way that is quite significant for the terms of this lecture. Poet Laureate Caroline Duffy's new war poem, Last Post. So, Caroline Duffy is a, <coughs> writes war poems and here's part of Last Post. In all of my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, <coughs> drowning. You'll recognise those lines in italics. If poetry could tell it backwards, true, begin that moment shrapnel scythed you to the stinking mud. But you get up, amazed. Watch bled bad blood run upwards from the slime into its wounds. See lines and lines of British boys rewind back to their trenches. Kiss the photographs from home, mothers, sweethearts, sisters, younger brothers. Not entering the story now, to die and die and die. Dolce, no. Decorum, no. Pro mori. You walk away. And then the last two lines of the poem. If poetry could truly write it backwards, then it would. Art can write it backwards. This is Kurt Vonnegut from Slaughterhouse Five, 1969. And a film seen backwards by Billy Pilgrim. And the story goes like this. American planes full of holes and wounded, wounded men and corpses took off backwards from an airfield in England. Over France, a few German fighter planes flew at them backwards, sucked bullets and shell fragments from some of the planes and crewmen. 
And I'll skip a bit. It's the second paragraph. The formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their Bombay doors, exerted a miraculous magnetism which shrunk the fires, gathered them into cylindrical steel containers and lifted the containers into the bellies of the planes. And at the very end of um, this sequence of three paragraphs, the American flyers turned in their uniforms, became high school kids, and Hitler turned into a baby. The Soviet director, Ellen Klimov, uses the same device at the end of Come and See, a Soviet film of the Great Patriotic War, the Second World War, from 1985. And he does so to juxtapose Nazi genocide. And you really don't want to see it. It's the most apocalyptic and upsetting war film I, I think I've seen. To juxtapose genocide and its traumatised protagonists' inability to destroy an image of Hitler as a baby. That same rewinding device is used. And I suppose the best known example is Martin Amos's um, turning of this, he calls it a paragraph, but it's three paragraphs from Slaughterhouse Five into the the, 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 the narrative structure of his, of his novel Time's Arrow, which is a novel of the Holocaust in reverse. Amos and Vonnegut, to use a literary theoretical term, defamiliarised narratives of mass killing, the final solution, the bombing of Dresden. That is, they told violence backwards to make it strange, to make us feel it as if for the first time. Remember G.H. Clarke? The war poet has left the mere arguments to others. He has seen and felt. But I'm not sure that Carol Ann Duffy's conditional, with which she ends her poem, if poetry could truly tell it backwards. I'm not sure whether that explains why she has untruly told it backwards. In Siegfried Sassoon's poem, Attack, time ticks blankly on the wrists of men going over the top, while hope flounders in mud. Jesus won't or can't, this poem's not specific, make it stop. But like Carol Ann Duffy, Andrew Motion does. In another poem about Harry Patch, um, this appeared in his uh, 2012 volume, The Customs House. At 0600 hours precisely, he gives the sing signal. This is, this is an, an officer in Flanders. And hundreds of thousands of dead who lie there immediately rise up, straightening their tunics before falling in as they used to do, shoulder to shoulder. Apologies for the typo on your, um, your handout. You might want to correct that. Shoulder to shoulder, eyes front. They have left a space for the last recruit of all to join them. Harry Patch 
111 years old. But this is him now, running quick sharp along the duckboards. I wonder whether the reversals and resurrections in these two poems about Harry Patch fail to defamiliarise or make strange because their authors are so respectful to the war poetry which they quote and echo and pastiche. The the repetition of the signifier mud is probably the most symptomatic act of homage in each poem. The poet Michael Hoffman, in an introduction to Payback, Gert Leydig's 1956 novel about the bombing of Germany, has written that the challenge of war as a subject, perhaps especially modern mechanised war, is to get us to feel it sharply and viscerally, not merely to know it, or think it in a dull and droning way. Hoffman quotes... Sorry. The reimagining of First World War poetry could be another form of sacralisation, of turning um, war poetry into a modern military Scripture, the mud in motions poetry, dry mud, is a Eucharistic wafer, you'll notice at the close of that poem. So what I'm suggesting there is is that the reimagining of First World War poetry risks knowing it or thinking it in a dull and droning way. Hoffman quotes the, another German, post-war German novelist, Wolfgang Kirpen, um, writing about Leydig's, Gert Leydig's novel to um, Leydig's publisher and stating that there is no Tolstoyan light to redeem the reader from Leydig's dark vision of war. But as I hope we've seen, a war poetry of commemoration, such as um, the poetry contained in in this volume, edited by Carol Ann Duffy, 1914 Poetry Remembers, in its simultaneous celebration of warriors and hatred of war, risks overplaying the redemptive promise of war poetry of setting the record straight again. So the thought I'll conclude this lecture with is a question. Is this the future of war poetry? Thank you very much.